So I'm going to talk more about koans and I present a slightly different angle than Jogan did um, about koan practice and um, give a little bit of background and present some of the various ways that koans are used in the Zen tradition. Some of my favorite koans goes, quick, quick, before a single thought arises, what is your original face? Before a single thought arises, who are you? Who are you really? So the Zen koan tradition provides another means for seeing through the machinations of mind and into its nature. And Jogan gave a little bit of history. I, I find this history very, um, very powerful and potent, uh, especially given just so much uncertainty that we are sitting in um, in our world today. War, climate instability, pandemic. The koan tradition arose, like Jogan said, in the Tang Dynasty, China, around the time of the Anxi Rebellion which the reality in China at that time was two thirds of the population died either from, specifically from the war or through famine, uh, displacement and disease. During this time, uh, two teachers emerged who are probably the, the early uh, predecessors of uh, the Soto and Rinzai school Master Ma in the, uh, in the Rinzai school and Master Shirto in the um, Soto school. And Master Ma in particular is um, regarded as the, the founder of koan study practice. And when he left the monastery after, um, at the end of the Anxi rebellion, he wandered the countryside for 20 years just really turning over his own uh, life question about practice. How can practice meet this particular moment of suffering? And he was really taking in how this period in China really affected people, the landscape, sense of home and place and identity. And he saw Dharma practice not as a means for being free from the world, but being free in the world. And I think the koan tradition carries still that uh, essential inquiry. How do we be free in the world, in the midst of our identities and chaos and the suffering that we encounter in our daily life, in our culture, in our society, in the world? He had a deep faith in everyone's ability to realize true nature and to live from the spaciousness of mind's nature. He was asked once, what is the essence of your school? And he said, oh, it's just the place where you let go of your body and your life. So I want to read a little bit um, about Master Ma from uh, Joan Sutherland, who is one of my favorite contemporary 
uh, Zen Buddhist koan teachers. And uh, this is from one of her books called Asequia and Gates, and it's about koan practice, and it's written very uh, poetically and poignantly and uh, creatively. Her uh, school of Zen really is working to adapt the koan tradition to modern American life, modern Western life, uh, in a way that really meets the, the, the suffering and the questions of this moment of our lives. So she says, she's talking about um, around the time of Master Ma, Chan was largely an introspective meditation practice. You looked inward to find your true self. Ma and his contemporary Shirto raised the eyes of Chan to the horizon. In, Shirto, in Shirto's words, what meets the eye is the way. What meets the eye is the way. This true self that you are looking for, they said, is not just here in your own heart-mind, but everywhere. Not just here in your own heart-mind, but everywhere. Everything you see is Buddha nature. Everything shines with that light. Everything you see is you. And this at a time when what you saw included blighted fields, refugees starving by the roadside, deserted towns. There's something so moving about the large and generous spirit of these two men who responded to the devastation around them by saying, this is all me, this is all you. They showed that the way to come to terms with life's pains is not by turning away from them, but my, by moving deeper into life and to encourage as many others as possible to join you. They embraced the great matter of their time. What do we do now, the one and three who survived? So a koan is an open question a word or phrase from a dharma talk or a sutra or poem that gets under our skin and needs to be known directly and we feel we feel the irritation of that uh, that question or that word or that phrase what does that mean we're drawn towards it for some reason it, it strikes something deep within us something perhaps that we didn't even realize we were carrying. Sometimes we don't even realize that we have these questions, that we've been turning over questions for years, and then something points it out to us. So perhaps Jogan's exercise this morning shed some light on questions that you already may have been engaged with perhaps questions that you had since childhood about the nature of reality, the nature of yourself. Sometimes these questions are unarticulated as questions with words. And it just doing the inquiry touches something of like, oh, I've always wondered that. There's some word for it. There's something to hang that, that just feeling of questioning <laughs> or of inquiry. 
So an ex example of this, last week um, I was teaching a retreat at um, Great Vow. Uh, it's a week-long retreat where we're exploring um, the Buddha's Parinirvana, so the inquiry is into the nature of life and the nature of death. And the people who usually come to that retreat have some relationship to death, either lost a loved one, had a close call recently, have a diagnosis, um, but the residents just have to attend it. Uh, and so there was this woman who just was very much like, I'm not really interested in this question. And it, was, it took till the end of the retreat when she realized, actually, I've been interested in death since I was a child. And I would always be asking my mom, like, what is death? What happens when we die? And at some point, she was basically told, like, you're not supposed to ask those kinds of questions. Like, there's something morbid about asking those questions. Just like, that's not something we think about. And so she gave it up. And, or, I think more, more true is the questioning went underground. And now, in her newly blossoming Zen practice, it's actually being given space to be felt again, to be inquired into. So there is the questions that we have that guide our living. And then there is the Zen tool of koans. So De Jogan demonstrated an aspect of koan practice earlier this morning. And he emphasized that koans aren't riddles or puzzles. They aren't intellectual exercises. If anything, they usually baffle the rational mind in a way, attempting to bypass it. It's just not going to work to think about this, or your thinking only gets so far. Koans today are often described in categories. So there are koans whose purpose is to open the mind into its nature, which is um, what Jogan was showing us earlier. So these would be koans like, who are you? Or the one I introduced in the beginning before a single thought arises, what is your original face? What is it that's alive? A koan moo, or the sound of one hand clapping, are traditional koans used in this way. Koans that you never answer in a way. You may have deep insights using them, but they never get old. Like that, that question is just so fundamental that you can keep finding life in it can keep keeping that door that, that the question opens open through continuous uh, questioning or touching back into it. Koans at this level invite us into the existential inquiry of who we truly are, what we are below all assumptions, before all labels. Who are you really? What are you really? And the mind will try to answer. It will say all sorts of things. And a koan asks us to keep asking, to not settle for the dribbles of thought, to sit, and as Jogan said, and this is important, so that's why I'm repeating it, to sit in the existential discomfort of the question. So that it's uncomfortable is actually part of the tool. It's getting, it's getting in, it's starting to really uh, touch those 
fixed beliefs that, that often are just so on the assumption level that we're just never, never bother questioning. It's helpful to work on a koan like this when the question is alive. And so sometimes we have our own version, our own version of, of those questions of what am I, who am I, who's doing this? And sometimes words aren't even necessary. It's a feeling, a feeling into an inquiry, a looking back, sitting in an open question, sitting as a question mark. In a way, I think of it sometimes as just like not trusting anything the mind tries to say and getting below that level of thought. <clears throat> Shinichi Himatsu uh, says, nothing will do. What do you do? Nothing will do. What do you do? This is the fundamental koan, the koan that is the common denominator of the thousand koans. So there are other forms that koans take. Another type of koan invites us into the play of emptiness. The play, as we were talking about it earlier, that creative play, the creative curiosity that has us break form a little bit and, and just start looking into mind's nature, playing with reality. But also the play of emptiness as in like a play, like a drama, <laughs> a play of life. It starts with the assumption you are not what you think you are. You are not limited to this human body and mind. You are not limited to the things that you've been told by society, by your culture, by your parents, by your loved ones. You are cosmos, universe, earth. You are one with everyone and everything. You are not limited by time or reason. So then the koan asks, bring me a mountain. Save a ghost. Stop the fighting across the river. This is a dream. And these are all distinct koans. So bring me a mountain, something you would work on. Or save a ghost. How do you save a ghost? How do you stop the fighting? How do you stop the war in Russia and Ukraine? How is this a dream? So these koans show us where we get stuck in our identifying with this personality, gender, body, form, time, place. Some people kind of balk at these koans, like, oh, it's just imagination. And my teacher chosen would often say in response to this, well, you're imagining being a human being with this, these certain thoughts and this certain past. And how far has that gotten you in being happy and feeling free? 
And I think to an extent we have recognized that our, our limits, that our, our stories, our memories, our sense of ourselves can be limiting. When we are kind of constantly trying to defend a viewpoint, that's limiting. That limits our compassion, it limits our ability to um, function freely. So why not try sitting as a mountain or as a dream and see what you discover? She also said last year we were working um, as sitting as a mountain. The whole Sangha was doing it for a month. And she said, if you do this every day for a month, it will change you. It will change you. And all koans will change you will give you another perspective to what you think of as your life. If you really let them in. So if you work with a koan like mountain, can sit as a mountain, walk as a mountain, feel your body in that stillness, like when you're in the presence of a mountain, it's like mind-stopping stillness sometimes. Feel the equanimity of a mountain, the age, the timelessness of mountain, the way time happens on a mountain. So these koans, they loosen identity. Practically speaking, they can help us try on other perspectives. They invite us to sit in the perspective of somebody else this apparent other. So when you practice with koans and you practice dropping your own identity and, and taking on the identity, it's easier to start with inanimate things, like a mountain, for me at least it was, like a mountain or a tree or the sky. But then you can try it on in your daily life, like I'm having a disagreement with somebody can I try stepping into their shoes, seeing from their perspective, seeing with their eyes? I notice I'm constantly judging a coworker. Can I try on their life and see what that's like? This style of koan also can inspire us to sit as Buddha, to sit as Kuan Yin, the, the Bodhisattva, the manifestation of of pure compassion, that we can try on the awakened state. And this is the heart of Shikantaza in Soto Zen practice. It's remembering, constantly remembering that I am Buddha, you are Buddha, that all that arises is part of Buddha's life, Buddha's body, which is the awakened life, the awakened body. And then we have uh, the case koans, which read as stories and invite a mythic archetypal, archetypal perspective into our practice. So we often use koan stories in Dharma talks. Uh, traditionally, practitioners would read and study the case koans in books like the Blue Cliff Record, the Mumon Khan, the Book of Serenity, the Denku Roku. Like Jogan mentioned, this, there are thousands of cases if you put all of those books together. And a practitioner in a, in a monastery would go through all of those. And so would have a deep familiarity with all 
of these different stories and questions. They would memorize them, read the commentary, work on them experientially. And these are a way of getting to know the ancestors, uh, the different teaching styles that each um, teacher embodied, the kinds of questions that practitioners ask, and the various ways that those same questions are answered by different teachers over the years. They also, like I said, they have an archetypal quality, so they can meet us in different life situations and give us opportunities to try on different outcomes or be a companion when we're facing particular particular obstacles in um, our daily life. So some koans, again, demand that we let go of limitations and open ourselves up to the magic of being, open ourselves up to the, the boundlessness, the limitlessness of uh, the imagination, the creative potential of the universe. So one example is Blue Cliff Case 62, Yunmen's Within There is a Jewel. Yunmen said to the community, within heaven and earth, through space and time, there is a jewel hidden inside the mountain of form. Pick up a lamp and go into the Buddha hall. Take the main gate and bring it on top of the lamp. Other cases present an aspect of practice that can often be applied to someone's life. Like, here's an example, Mumon case 46. Master Shisheng says, how do you step off a 100-foot pole? Then uh, Changsha has a poem in reaction to that. You who sit on top of a 100-foot pole, although you have entered the way, it is not genuine. Take a step off of the pole, and the worlds of the ten directions are your total body. A koan like this can be worked on when someone is in a period of hesitation, not knowing what to do next, or attachment to an old way of life that is quickly slipping by. It could also apply to someone who is comfortable in the ways of meditation and emptiness and now needs to again embrace the world of form and the messiness of life. It can also apply to places in life where we prefer to watch from the sidelines. It can encourage us to take risks, to get dirty, to make mistakes. So this might be an important koan for some people at certain times in their life. And for others, a koan like, bring me a mountain which would help develop equanimity to learn that you don't always need to be in the trenches. You don't always need to be feeling the biggest pain that everyone else is feeling in the world, but to learn to have equanimity and acceptance. For some of us, we need to learn to let go, to not do. And for others, we need to learn to engage. And there are probably places in life that we need to learn one or the other or both. Another case in the Blue Cliff Record, and this is the one I wanna work on together, is Blue Cliff Record Case 86. Yunman said to the assembly, everyone has their own light. 
When you look for it, it is dark and hidden. What is this light? He then answered, the kitchen pantry and the main gate. And then he said, a good thing isn't as good as nothing. So as you can see, there are many aspects of a case koan. In this particular one, we're invited to see the light in everyone, including ourselves. This koan can be uplifting and revelatory when someone is despairing the world or despairing themselves or the people in their life. When the inner critic is up, where's your light? And of course, it also has the power to take us into the depths of mind's nature, the light of awareness, where there is no you, no me, no world. How do you experience this light? How can you find it when it appears to be covered up? So koans are usually worked together in sansen. A student is given a koan and then sits with it, takes it for walks, sees how it functions in their life. They let the koan work on them and then they present it to a teacher. Both Jogen Sensei and I have experienced working on koans like this. But it's also possible to work on koans together in a group like this. So let's work on this last one I presented. Everyone has their own light. What is this light? So we can uh, start by uh, sitting. So taking a little time to stretch your body and get into a zazen position.